Chapter Twenty Two, Part Two, of the Autobiography of Moncure Conway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simon Wainwright. Auto biography memories and experiences volume one by moncure d conway chapter twenty two part two i was informed by sumner that the president would give me a foreign consulate if i desired it which i did not at one time believing the war one of emancipation I had thought of serving in Virginia as a chaplain, and mentioned this to General Schenck. But when his offer came, I was filled with horror at the thought of assisting a military invasion of people, not for their rescue and that of their slaves, nor for rescue of the nation from the demon of discord and desolation. On March 6, 1862, the President made his first move towards abolition, a proposal to Congress to offer cooperation by pecuniary aid to any state that should adopt gradual abolition of slavery. Congress adopted this without reminding the President that only the war power authorized this, and that a measure of repressing the rebellion it had no relevancy. Gradual emancipation was at most like firing off a gun a little at a time. But that decree, really for prolongation of the war, shocked the border states. They were enraged by seeing Wendell Phillips lecturing in Washington, receiving attentions in the Capitol, and conversing with Lincoln. Phillips went from Washington to Cincinnati, where in attempting to lecture at pike's opera house he was furiously mobbed i was in boston but arrived soon at cincinnati it was doubtful whether the mob was kentuckian or ohioan a large jag stone was hurled grazing phillips head then smaller stones and eggs some of which hit him Someone turned off the light, and Phillips, with some members of my society in boxes near him, was conducted in the darkness under the stage to an exit on a back street. Phillips insisted on filling his engagement to speak from my pulpit on Sunday, and wrote to me that his visit was particularly pleasant. The assault excited much indignation. The orator was entertained by eminent citizens, and that was, I believe, the last literal stoning of an abolitionist. The Western Unitarian Conference met in May 1862 at Detroit, and I went there for the purpose of offering the following resolution, that in this conflict the watchword of our nation and our church and our government should be mercy to the south death to slavery 
the resolution unanimously adopted was supported with enthusiasm robert collier's speech being especially powerful on my return to cincinnati i found letters indicating the purpose of prominent men in boston to start in that city a journal to advocate immediate emancipation i was asked whether i would edit such a paper and after much consideration my wife and i concluded on acceptance my wife was giving to the hospitals all the time she could spare from our two children the strain on her was severe i also was beginning to drag my harness i did not however resign my pulpit but asked for a six months absence on june twenty ninth eighteen sixty two i gave my parting discourse before leaving for the east we went to pass some weeks with our intimate friends mr and mrs oriel eaton at their summer cottage yellow springs i found there enough repose even to indulge myself in an occasional game of chess dr philip meredith president of the chess club being within a mile of us one day however when we were in the middle of a game i was sent for in haste by my wife a note had arrived from my mother saying that two of my father's slaves had reached washington but most of them were wandering helplessly in stafford within the lines of the northern army i started the same evening and after a wearisome journey of nearly three days on irregular trains crowded with soldiers reached washington after some searching i found those i was looking for dunmore gwynne and his wife they had set up a small candy shop in georgetown taken in washing and saved sixty dollars it had been long since tidings concerning my relatives in virginia had reached me a small parcel containing an old china cup and saucer and a silver spoon had been sent me from washington at the request of a union soldier who had saved from the wreck of things in conway house falmouth these relics are connected with a curious incident when the union army under general mcdowell entered falmouth they found the village deserted by the whites my father was in fredericksburg and my two brothers far away in the confederate ranks the house was left empty and locked up the house servants remaining in their abode in the back yard yet as the union soldiers were filing past a shot was fired from a window of conway house or from a corner of its yard and a soldier was wounded it was never known who fired the shot our negroes assured me that the house was locked and watched the union soldiers alarmed and enraged battered down the doors and finding no one began vengeance on the furniture it happened however that in my mother's bedroom was hung a portrait of myself and this caught the eye of a youth who had known me in washington he cried to his furious comrades to stop 
the servants were called in and were much relieved when they found that it was to speak of my portrait old eliza cried it's mars monk the preacher a good abolitionist as any of you it was some consolation to me that though long regarded as the black sheep of the family my portrait saved conway house from destruction for that was contemplated the house was of brick and the largest in falmouth it was made a hospital and the seriously wounded soldier was its first inmate my father heard of the incident with distress and under a flag of truce crossed the rappahannock to express to the federal commander his horror at the deed and give proof that all the members of his family were distant from the spot he was believed and granted his request to visit the wounded soldier with a good deal of emotion he approached the young man expressed his horror of the crime and his distress at seeing him suffering he exclaimed said my father in telling me this story oh i glory in it my father would have been glad to make some kind of practical redress but it was impossible and he left his house with feelings of admiration for the sufferer it was in conway house hospital that walt whitman for a time nursed the suffering soldiers the negroes who were included in the lines of the union armies by their advance had learned that they were not so made free but they had given our government undeserved credit by their belief that all of them who did some service to our soldiers however little blacking boots washing clothes etc would be free none of our negroes had followed dunmore gwynne and his wife to georgetown i therefore resolved to go to falmouth if possible and bring them all away i consulted my old friend secretary chase and formed a plan of settling our negroes at yellow springs where i had friends secretary chase took me to see secretary of war stanton i found him hard and narrow-minded he said they did not want any more negroes in the district and when i said that i would merely take them through the district he said that the military situation in stafford was too critical for him to give me the permit i then visited president lincoln and stated the entire case he sympathized with my purpose and recognized that i had a right to look after my father's slaves he warned me however of the personal danger in such a journey i told him that i had considered that matter and would be cautious i also promised to be prudent in not connecting him or the administration with the affair i simply needed practical suggestions as to the best means of doing a thing which for the rest would really relieve his officers in virginia and ultimately the district from the care of fifty or sixty colored people the president advised me to call on general wadsworth 
I think he must have communicated with this general. For next day, when I appealed to Wadsworth in company with W. H. Channing, who determined to accompany me to Falmouth, he did not hesitate to give us the necessary orders. Headquarters, Military District of Washington, Washington, D.C. The Reverend Mr. Conway will be allowed to go to Falmouth and return on government boat and railroad train. W.J. Wadsworth, Brigadier General. We were both staying at the house of our friends, Mrs. Walter Johnson and her sister, Miss Donaldson, always the anti-slavery saints of the Unitarian Society. We had arranged to start at daybreak the next day, but during the evening I began to feel that my plans were too immature. If, as was probable, our Negroes were in separate localities and far away from Falmouth, how could they be reached and collected? How could they be brought up to Washington? General Wadsworth's permit said nothing about Negroes. I had provided myself with money, but might need the aid of Stafford Negroes. But it had been many years since I had known the Negroes there, and they might suspect any white man searching for colored people. After I had gone to bed, I was seized with an impulse to consult an old mulatto whom I had known in boyhood, and who now resided in the farthest suburb of Georgetown. He had helped many a slave to escape, and probably knew the principal Negroes between Georgetown and Falmouth. He would be able to give me their names and some advice about my expedition. But the distance was five miles, and I was baffled by a terrible storm. I waited long for it to abate, but it only seemed to increase. I determined, however, to go, and without disturbing anyone, crept out into the darkness at about eleven o'clock. The thunder and lightning were fierce. The rain fell in torrents. The wind rendered an umbrella useless. The streets were flooded. As I approached Georgetown Bridge, the lights were few, but I knew every foot of the road leading to my old Methodist circuit. When I had got through Georgetown to the line of Negro cabins, a new difficulty confronted me. They were all dark. It was after midnight, and I could not identify the shanty sought. At length, however, I sought a glimmer of light in one little window, and to that I went. As I approached the door, I heard Negro voices within singing a hymn. When I knocked, the voices ceased. There was perfect silence. On another knock, a voice demanded, Who is that? I answered, A friend, Moncure Conway. There was a wild shout. The door flew open, and there I found all my father's Negroes. They had just arrived, most of them in the storm, through a weary way of near sixty miles, 
they had been dragging themselves and their little ones their coverlets and boxes they were crammed into the two ground rooms the children sleeping wherever they could find a place for their weary heads and several mothers had babes at their breast the latest comers were wet the elements had pursued them like bloodhounds they were tossed about by destiny but still able to raise their song in the night many years had parted me from them but when i entered all knew me on the instant old maria who had nursed me when i was a child sprang forward and folded me in her arms as if i were still an infant they pressed around me with their children and clung to me as to a lifeboat in their storm far into the night we sat together and they listened with glistening eyes as i told them of the region to which i meant to take them where never should they feel oppression never hear of war again thus i was saved the danger and expense of going down into stafford but for all the gladness of this night my troubles had scarcely begun it was yet a question whether negroes situated like these were free to go north for every colored person taken over them the railroads exacted a bond of three thousand dollars with security for fear they might be sued by an owner for taking off his property and there was still a potential pro-slavery and confederate mob in baltimore through which at the time a journey to ohio must be made in baltimore passengers going west were taken in omnibuses through many streets to another station general wadsworth military governor of the district was ready to see me safely on the road to baltimore but could not guarantee me transit through that city senator sumner got together several congressmen to consult on the matter and one of them giddings i think said the only safe way was for me to take a cowhide and drive the negroes through the baltimore streets but though such a ruse might as he humorously said bring all white baltimore to my feet it was suggested that it might have the reverse effect on the excited negroes there though my father was a confederate there was yet no legal process by which the title of his slaves to freedom could be perfected i was thus in the eye of the law a slaveholder although i could not obtain authority to convey these negroes to ohio secretary chase obtained a letter to general wool commander at fort mchenry which would authorize him to grant me protection if necessary in taking my father's slaves through baltimore this did not brighten the prospect much general wool was a good but infirm old man not likely to interest himself in my affair 
and the fort was a long distance from the center of Baltimore, through which we had to pass. At last, we started out from Washington, a concourse of colored people attending us. The terrors did not fail us when we were set down in the streets of Baltimore with a small world of baggage and far from the other station. There were no arrangements to take any but white people from station to station. The sensation we caused was immediate. Hundreds of Negroes of all ages surrounded us and became so mixed up with mine, especially the children, that it was hard to distinguish them. For a few moments there was danger from these Negroes. There had been rumors of Washington slaveholders hurrying their slaves into Maryland to evade the new act of emancipation in the district, and my Virginian physique being unmistakable, the dusky folk muttered and hissed around me and impeded my efforts, but some signs passed from my contrabands which suddenly transformed the angry crowd into friends. They were presently conveying us with our baggage in wagons, making a procession across the city. But the procession was too triumphal. It excited attention in every street, and when we reached the station we had an ugly crowd of whites to confront. Alas, there was no westward train for three mortal hours. I took the Negroes into the regular waiting room, so completely had I forgotten the customs of slave states. Of course, the railroad officials drove us angrily out. I asked for some room. They had no room for niggers. I offered to pay for one, but could not get it. I asked to be permitted to take them into a car, but was told that the gate would not be unlocked for two hours. Meanwhile, we were in the street, and the crowd of whites was increasing every moment, and they saw, by the delight of the blacks, that it was an abolition movement. Uglier and uglier they became, glaring at me, and annoying the Negroes under my protection, until I had to restrain my men from resentment. I implored my people to be patient, and pointed out to the police the threatening aspect of affairs, but these snaringly said it was my own affair, not theirs. Nevertheless, I took a bit of paper from my pocket, and I declared it would take the Negroes through, though it should bring the guns of Fort McHenry on the city. This imposing utterance had evident effect on some in the crowd, yet they persisted in worrying my Negroes, and when I interfered several called me a damned abolitionist, who had brought on the war. At length, much to my relief, the ticket agent appeared at his window. I saw that, like the other officials, he was angry, but he was a fine-looking Marylander. He turned into Flint as I approached, and when I asked the price of tickets, he said sharply, I can't let those Negroes go on this road. 
at any price. I knew that he would have to let them go, but knew also that he could make things very uncomfortable for us. I silently presented my military order to the disagreeable and handsome agent, and he began to read it. He had read but two or three words of it when he looked up with astonishment and said, The paper says these are your father's slaves. They are, I replied. Why, sir, they would bring a good deal of money in Baltimore. Possibly, I replied, whereupon moved probably by supposing that I was making a great sacrifice, he said, By God, you shall have every car on this road if you want it. Then, having sold me the tickets, he gave his ticket selling to a subordinate and went out to secure us a car to ourselves. And from that moment, the end precautions around us sank and our way was made smooth. It was late in the evening when we started, and we were to travel all night. I observed that the Negroes would neither talk nor sleep. The mothers had put their children to sleep, but were themselves holding a silent watch. They were yet in a slave state, and every station at which the train paused was a possible danger. At last, when the name of a certain wooding-up station was called out, I observed that every eye danced, every tongue was loosened, and after some singing they all dropped off to sleep. It was not until next day that I learned that the station which had wrought such a transformation was the dividing line between the slave and the free states. How they knew it I cannot divine. It was a small place, but there the shadow of slavery ended. Probably Dunmore Gwynn had learned about the frontier from Colin Williams in Georgetown. My wife and the Eatons at Yellow Spring daily telegraphed my movements, had with some neighbors prepared for the reception of the Negroes. A large old barn was offered by Mr. Grinnell, and an energetic company got into its pallets and furniture enough for immediate comfort. The labor of the Negroes was in demand. Dunmore, with his sixty dollars and some little assistance, was able to set up a home for himself and his large family, where they carried on various occupations. Many of our Negroes had been house servants and had better manners than those of the colored people in Ohio. The only trouble came through their exceeding piety. One man had such a passion for preaching and pious meetings that he failed to give satisfaction on the farm where he was employed because of the inspiration that carried him suddenly away from the field to some prayer meeting. He and his family moved over to Dayton, but I shall have to refer to my little colony again. Having several engagements to lecture in Massachusetts and consultations about the projected journal to attend, I hastened to Boston. 
having taken to my sister at Easton, Pennsylvania, a young octoroon to whom she was much attached. In Boston, I was the guest of Dr. and Mrs. Samuel G. Howe. I had enjoyed their hospitality before, and a great enjoyment it was. Dr. Howe, one of the most interesting of men, had several times taken me to visit the celebrated Laura Bridgman, the deaf, dumb, and blind lady whom he had endowed with intelligence. The graphic account of Laura and the miracle wrought by Dr. Howe, given by Charles Dickens' American Notes, had not enabled me to realize the full wonder of what had been achieved. Julia Ward Howe, who had gained a high rank among poets by her Passion Flowers, had by her Battle Hymn of the Republic given lyric expression to the anti-slavery enthusiasm that entered into the war. Among the stories I told her was one of a Negro who had come within the Union line at Port Royal, Virginia, and said to our commander there, Colonel Lee, Will you please, sir, tell me if I am a free man? The commander was dumb. Next day, Mrs. Howe handed me the following. Tell me, master, am I free? From the prison land I come, from a wrecked humanity, from the fable of a home, from the market where my wife, with my baby at her breast, faded from my narrow life, rudely bartered and possessed. Masters, ye are fighting long. Well, your trumpet blast we know. Are ye come to right a wrong? Do we call you friend or foe? Will ye keep me for my faith? From the hound that scents my track, from the riotous drunken breath, from the murder at my back, God must come from whom we pray, knowing his deliverance true. Shall our men be left to say, he must work it free of you? Links of an unsighted chain, bound the spirit of our braves waiting for the nobler strain silence told him we were slaves the little book of which i have already spoken the golden hour was published by tickner and fields in august eighteen sixty two a club of republican leaders formed around one of the best of men and called after his name the frank bird club had arranged at one of their dinners for the new journal another admirable man was george l stearns of medford from him i received a note of july thirty one saying i am ready to furnish the means for the present publication of a weekly newspaper which will fearlessly tell the truth about this war. End 
of chapter twenty two part two recording by simon wainwright